Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Ruth Mainz, violinist, music teacher and executive director of the Omaha Conservatory of Music. Our conversation is being recorded out of the studio at the Omaha Conservatory of Music. Ruth Mainz has been the executive director of the Omaha Conservatory of Music since 2005 and authored the String Sprouts Curriculum, a groundbreaking strings curriculum for children ages 3 to 9. She currently teaches violin and viola at the conservatory and conducts various workshops around the country in violin pedagogy and music education, integrating current neuroscience findings into music teaching. Ruth received her Bachelor of Music in Violin Performance from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and her Master of Music degree with an emphasis in Suzuki pedagogy all by the age of 22. Ruth, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> so we were just chatting beforehand and um, I wanted to hear you describe that time when you first picked up uh, a violin and, and tried to play. All right, well... Uh, getting my violin, there was a little bit of a story that led up to that because uh, in my house, we lived in a little far square farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere, gearing area in the country, and we didn't have a television. So there wasn't a lot to do. And we had records. So there was this uh, Montavani record, and uh, we listened to some Henry Mancini and Stuart Hamblin telling stories and loved to sing at the top of our lungs to the Camelot musical uh, album. So we had this a lot of music happening and my parents actually met at missionary school and so they had a gospel radio show as well. So we had singing at our house and, and all kinds of things. And I really wanted to play the flute. That was my, my, my first thing. Um, they didn't start flute players until band, which was like fourth grade, and I was seven. And, and my mom said, you know, whenever we're listening to Mondovani, you're actually picking out the violin part. That's the part you're always singing and, and liking. So I'm going to see if I can, I can get you a violin. So I said, okay, violin, great. I'm so thankful my mom <laughs> got me on the violin, got started on the violin. But uh, she did try to get me a teacher, and they, that was right when Suzuki was new on the scene and um, so she called the area guy and, and he said well how old is your daughter? Seven. Uh, well that's too old. We, we like to start them when they're three or four. Do you have any other kids? So my little sister was four but she did, could care less so my mom said well no we're, we're doing violin and we'll, we'll find a teacher and worked very hard to get somebody in that rural area and my parents were really integral in helping me do anything because there's just not a lot out there, right? Uh, so anyway, I remember the day my mom said, you need to go into your bedroom and check under your bed. There's something waiting for you in there. So I went into my room and there was the violin. I pulled it out and opened it and dug into my Bell One book one and read through the entire thing and 
tried to figure everything out on my own, looked at the picture, how do you hold the bow, and finally got my, my first teacher, Bonnie Lyman, and I had already, you know, read through the entire Bellwin book one by the time, um, read through it, not played through it, read through it, so I knew all of the text, completely understood every concept, just hadn't actually physically tried it by the time I walked into my first lesson. So um, I had a lot of time on my hands and I practiced a lot. What I find fascinating about that is before you even had your first formal lesson with a violin, I'm getting a sense from you of an incredible curiosity about and passion for just the instrument itself. And that seems really interesting to me. You became acquainted with the instrument, uh, the tactility of it, um, maybe some oh, of the yeah. reading around it, even before you took a lesson. Oh yeah, I had that thing open and was looking at it and exploring you know, what the violin was and all the different parts of the violin memorized. And I'm a very visual learner anyway, so I just loved looking through the book and thinking about what it meant to play open G or open D or open A, or, but not trying it yet, <laughs> trying to create. And so I'm sure my teacher was really excited to see someone as inspired to play as I was at the beginning, but we're all inspired to play at the beginning. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's stay at the beginning <laughs> for now and then we'll, we'll talk about the hard work. So what was your, do you remember your first lesson? I, I don't remember my first lesson very well. Um, I remember the house, though, um, you know, just everything about the house and because I went there for so many years, you know, every week. That's the special thing about, about being a, a music teacher is most kids will have their teacher for a year and then they'll go to a different teacher and they'll have their... But the music teacher has the ability to be in that child's life for years and years. So Bonnie Lyman, I took studied with her for, oh my goodness, probably 10 years, maybe, maybe a little less than that, eight, eight years. That's a long time to go to somebody's house every single week and spend 30 to an hour of one-on-one -on -one time with someone, which is very rare these days, so. So it sounds to me as if you recognize early that somehow music was integral to who you were meant to be in some way? I think so. I, I think um, music is, for me, um, very much about stories. So like a lot of the Stuart Hamlin thing, you know, he'd be telling a story about dogs mushing across the frozen tundra, and I'd be looking out my window at the frozen tundra. <laughs> You know, imagining, because, you know, there I had to use my imagination a lot. There wasn't, there without a television, that's, you're, you're left to creativity and storytelling. And, and that was a lot of my evenings with my family. You know, we'd sing through different songs and, you know, uh, a lot of gospel songs. And then also just, you know, things we'd heard on the, my dad was a guitar player and, We'd sing a lot of songs, and that, that was family time. So it meant a lot about, to me, about community and how I related to people. If you think about our, our events in our lives, they always include music. We sing happy birthday at everybody's birthday party. You know, I mean, there's always some musical element a lot of times. And so 
I don't know, music was just a... And I, I cry a lot. My dad cries a lot, but I'm a crybaby as well. I get it from him. I, I'm blaming my dad for that one. But um, music really gets me, gets to me. You know, if, it's, if there's some story that's got some sad... I'm like, don't sing that one, Dad. Don't sing it. I know the ending. Spoiler alert. The dog's going to pass away, and I'm going to be crying, so don't do that one. <laughs> See, I'm even tearing up now, thinking about old Shep. <laughs> suggesting this honeymoon period, which seems astonishing to say when you were sort of seven or eight years old, going through um, the initial phases of learning mm -hmm. to play music and, and loving this violin instrument. But um, at some point it sounds as if it just gets to be a bit of a slog. I think that's, there's a period of time when you start, novelty is what captures our attention. Novelty and curiosity. So something's new, you're going to pay attention to it. And then as it becomes not new, you're going to be less interested in it until you can get to the phase where you identify with it. So there's this period of developing competence and autonomy in, in whatever skill it is you're trying to acquire, that if you don't have someone to help you and you're not motivated to get through that, so that you get to the other side where you say, I'm a violinist, I'm now identifying myself as a violinist, nothing's going to stop me from practicing once I get to that point when it's become part of my identity. But that trail and how long it takes you to get from the novelty stage to the identity stage can be long and it can be, it can be never traversed. I mean, you can not make it, right? And that's when you have somebody who quits or just decides not to do it um, anymore. But uh, there's a lot of things that you can do along that path to help yourself get to that identity stage. I think part of my life, like my life longing is to provide opportunities for kids. And part of it stems from being out in the middle of nowhere and realizing, I want more, where can I get more? And taking advantage of every little thing and seeing my parents driving me two and a half hours one way to a violin lesson because that was the closest place I could study. Having to, to take a GED to get out of high school early so I could go to college where I could actually get training because there wasn't anything. Losing out on those two years of, of being with my family, that gets to me. But you, you have to do it when you're in a rural area. So there's the same shortages occur here in, in a big city that occur in the rural area. It's just the challenge of getting it there is a little different. What was your childhood, what, what was your family context and what was your childhood like outside of music? I went to a little country school called, called Cedar Canyon for a while. And they, it was one of these schools that had more than one class together because there weren't enough kids to have you know, a singular class. 
And I loved that because I had, you know, there were like four or five kids in my class and I knew them quite well. And then uh, when I got to fourth grade, we moved to Scott's Bluff and we moved to the town that was, or the street that was right on the edge. So I could look out my window and see cows. I was thankful for half farm, half town. <laughs> uh, but when we moved into Scott's Bluff, that was quite a different experience to go to school, public school there, where you actually had a class of fourth graders. Fourth grade was the grade that I started in school. And then, um, you know, I sort of got immersed in that. So it was fairly regular, I would say, you know, as far as schooling goes. But living in a little town like that, you know everybody. And my mom was a radio personality, so she was on every morning and said, you know, what, what's happening in the community? Whenever we had any big conferences, home and garden things, she would be the MC for it. And so we were also known, a known family because of that, I mean. <laughs> How did you navigate that period of time between novelty and music being part of your identity? Mm -hmm. How did you get through that slog? Because I think that will help us talk later about how uh, you as a teacher help mm -hmm. people get through that period. I spent a lot of time at the library and I always, I think I was put on this earth to be a teacher and I would always check out books on how do you, how do you organize a school? Like I have papers and things that I've written about, here's the classes I would offer in an art school and, and I was writing these things when I was like in sixth grade. So it was something that I, and my poor sister, you know, my favorite game to play at home was school. <laughs> and I was the teacher and my, my sister was the, the student. And so when she wasn't in school, she got to play school. <laughs> it was terrible. And so I would be trying to think about ways to learn and present things in an exciting way. So because I had this, this penchant for teaching anyway, um, I was a fairly good, I wasn't going to give up on something that was challenging to me. That isn't what you see all the time, though, in students. So a lot of times it'll be a competence thing that gets, the, gets somebody's goat. They just, you know, can't do something. And nobody likes to do something that they can't do. And so then it's gone. Um, if I would get too involved with something... You know, my mom would, of course, use the usual threats of, I'm calling your violin teacher and canceling your lesson if you don't practice. And so I would, you know, <laughs> go practice because I didn't want my violin teacher being called and my lesson canceled. Um, so there were those usual sort of bribery type elements. And I also had a little bit of a frustration with myself, which a lot of people have as well. Um, so those kinds of what I experienced as a child, I tried to figure out ways that I can help students now because I know they're experiencing the same thing. Just to give you an idea of the level of frustration, um, I was trying to learn something. I would have to, to set the timer for 30 minutes and the timer was in the kitchen, right? So I'm in my bedroom practicing. And I was really frustrated, and I took my bow and I whacked it on the stand, which broke it. And um, so I thought, oh man, I am so in trouble. What do I do? You know. So I cooked up a story that I was walking out 
I told my mom, I said, my bow's broken. I've broken my bow. I walked out of the room to check how much time I had left to play, and it got caught on the edge of the door there where you have a frame, and the tip got in there, and it broke the bow. And I'm so sorry, Mom. And so the next day she went into town. She got me a bow, probably the only one in Scott's Bluff, without ordering it, brought it back to the house. Um, and I'm practicing. I thought, man, I'm never doing that again. I need to control myself. That was ridiculous. And I walk out of the room, and I catch my bow on the edge of the door frame, and I break it. <laughs> this, is, this is my life. I can't ever get away with anything. So I'm the most honest person I can be, because if I ever tried to say I'm going to get caught, right? So I went out and I said, Mom, you know yesterday when I said I caught my bow in the edge? I actually broke it getting mad. This time I did walk out of the room and catch it on the side and break it. I mean, what are you gonna do, right? It sounds as if you really needed, if you were going to flourish, it needed to be um, at, a, at a more challenging school, more challenging environment. So you went to university early, mm -hmm. but you suggested earlier that there, as much as you have become a consummate professional and a talent with music and music teaching, it feels like there was a little bit of a price to pay by going to yes. university earlier. Um, what were the implications for you of, of going to mm -hmm. college you know, a couple of years earlier than your peers? I knew I had to do it, and my parents said, you need to do this, otherwise I couldn't grow in the way I needed to. Um, but I wrote my dad, my dad and I had this agreement we would write each other every day, written letters, and so we did that for two years. I was six, I had just turned 16 when I went to college and had my first roommate and did the whole living in, you know, Harper, Shram, Smith dorms. And <laughs> those still a thing, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was quite an experience to be there that young. It was the right thing to do, but it was also very odd to watch my class graduate two years and me sit in the you know, bleachers there and watch all, all of my class graduate. And even to this day, I do not get invited, this could be a blessing or a curse, but I do not get invited to the reunions because what class am I in? So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to be in that kind of weird, not a class. <laughs> In a small town, you grow up with all of those people. You know them all. So I, I did my sophomore year of, of high school. So I just didn't do senior, junior and senior year. Certainly I want to hear you if you would be gracious enough to play something with your violin. All if... right, sure. Um, this would be, uh, my dad's a pastor and, and um, of Chuck Wagon Church. So I most of the songs that I would play, to choose to play would be along the old hymn, hymn side of things. So, um, and would you tell us what you're going to play just so we know? Uh, let's, let's see, this one might be recognizable. Okay. We'll see.
and you talked earlier about the impact music can have on us emotionally. Mm -hmm. And all forms of art have some kind of emotional, I think, resonance with us, and as well as an intellectual one. But music seems to fast track its way somewhere deep within us. What is uh, the importance of music and perhaps learning music in, in our lives for us as individuals and maybe mm -hmm. as communities too? I think that um, you know the reason that music does that fast tracking thing is because when they put on those helmets to see what's activated in your brain, the entire brain is activated. So most of the time an activity will be very left brain, you know, the analytical side of things, or it might be really right brain with the create creativity side of it. Um, there's some things that maybe cross over and do both. But what um, the emotional center of the amygdala, the emotional center, is also activated. So you've got left, right brain and the emotional centers, which is what you try to do as a good teacher. If you want somebody to learn something, you need to engage their emotions into it because they'll learn better. So that's why I'm not a proponent of making a kid play something that they hate. If they don't like the song, you're going to lose the emotional or the piece they're learning. You're going to lose that emotional connection. If they really like it, they'll. If they really like the song, like they say, "I really want to learn this piece," then then you're going to not be able to stop them. So you can see the emotional connection that we have to something that we really love. That you'll work forever to do that. But um, if you know if it's like the next piece you have to learn is this, and you're like. I don't like that piece. It's going to be a long road to hoe. And there's so much violin repertoire out there. You shouldn't play something you don't like. That's why a lot, there's been a real, I guess it's not a resurgence. It's, it's a bringing in of alternative styles, things that kids really like. You know, I have, I have this little kid in my Sprout class and, you know, she's her, she got a book of, of Frozen songs, you know, and she, her mom can't get her to stop practicing, right? Because she wants to learn that. So that's the kind of thing, you know, a pop song or fiddling. We just had Mark O'Connor here, and that was an amazing experience to be around that. And kids that really enjoy fiddling were super motivated. And people that didn't know they enjoyed mo fiddling are now doing it. And so there's all kinds of, of things to play. And in the classical realm, there's a variety. So if you don't like... Vivaldi, then play something Tchaikovsky. I mean, there's a, a gamut of different things you could choose from. Tell us about music pedagogy. Uh, I know your bio talks about uh, Suzuki, mm -hmm. which right. I'd like to understand. And, and then mm -hmm. maybe you can talk about more contemporary ways that music education has developed. I was extremely lucky, and I didn't know I was lucky when it happened. Um, but I got to study with my mentor is John was John Kendall, and John Kendall was was one of the guys who brought Suzuki over from Japan to the United States. So he was the leader in bringing the Suzuki philosophy to the United States, and he was a brilliant teacher. I've never been around somebody that's that that's able to just connect first off the connection is really important some teachers are really great pedagogy have great pedagogy but the, there's no connection between 
you cannot you can't sense the love that that person has for the people themselves and then he could just he thought in outline form or these are the five steps you need to do to get to this place so it was like when I had my lessons with him I only had lessons with him for two years while I was there every lesson was like wow I could if I could just download this guy's brain which I tried to do believe me 100% um, we had pedagogy class for three hours a week we had to be videotaped teaching and then he would give feedback you could observe him I took full advantage of every opportunity that I could to just be around him and understand and I remember saying to him Mr. Kendall I've seen you teach the four string crossing principles with so many different students and I remember when you taught it to me the first time in the lesson and it was like I how do you stay so fresh after 50 years teaching the four string crossing principles and he said well that's easy every person's different and so you realize you're going to have an experience every individual is a completely new experience surrounding concepts music is conceptual teaching is conceptual and so you have to be beware of getting into these are the four rules that you're going to do and you just do those rules and it doesn't matter what's happening with the student and so it's a very fine line between presenting a concept and connecting with that person in the way they need to be connected with in order to understand that particular concept sounds like a really interesting tension between the rigor of a standard proven curriculum customizable enough to the particular individual human being that is encountering that education and also that um, tension between something that is um, uniform but also speaks to the personal likes of, of an individual as well that this creative spark of art mm -hmm. that, that is part of music yeah I think I think that um, that's why I said Suzuki philosophy and you will hear people say Suzuki method. I was in a class with Dr. Suzuki himself and he said this, I don't want you to call it the Suzuki method because, and then he went up to the person, what's your name? And she said, you know, Susie Smith. And he said, it's the Susie Smith method. I'm just giving you some tools. So every single person has to be presenting the philosophy which the philosophy itself is beautiful it's the parent student child triangle we're all working together to make a really wonderful human being um, by starting them very young by helping them to repeat just like you would repeat words your language through a very encouraging positive environment so all of the elements that are the philosophy of Suzuki it's just we use certain pieces and that philosophy can be applied and I apply it every day to pieces that are not in the Suzuki books it's bigger than the method it's about approaching human beings in a way that they can connect their skill level and their desire to to express themselves in a positive, you know, wonderful way that encourages family engagement and all of those things.
So tell us about String Sprouts. It's a groundbreaking yeah. curriculum yeah. Uh, that you developed. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and, and okay. why it's important. Well, the, the String Sprouts, you know, did, this is perfect segue. So when I developed String Sprouts, I chose the two principles from the Suzuki philosophy that I felt were the most key, which is starting really young. So the kids in that, in, in Sprouts, start three or four years old. And then um, also mandatory caregiver involvement. Now I say caregiver because the, this is for kids that are in poverty or under-resourced areas like rural areas like where I grew up. Um, and oftentimes it might not be a parent, it might be a grandparent, it might be a person that stays with the child, a babysitter, it might be an older sibling aunt and uncle, I mean, it, it's whoever is going to be the regular practicer with the child is who is the caregiver is. So those two aspects of the Suzuki philosophy are core to string sprouts. There's another uh, method called El Sistema. It was, it was originated in Venezuela. And what they did is they provided instruments for the kids. And it was at no cost to them. And it was an after-school program to keep kids off the streets. But it was more fourth grade, fifth grade level, you know, it was an after school type activity for the kids. The two elements there are providing the instrument because that can be a barrier. There's no way to get an instrument. They don't have the money to get an instrument. And then going to their neighborhood. So we have classes out in Scotts Bluff, for instance. Um, we have Council Bluffs, all North Omaha, South Omaha kids in the program. We have a um, licensing in Kansas City and now a new program in Orange County, California that's licensed and other people interested. So it's something that you can do to help kids. I mean, I any anybody who's in a rural area that's a string player could do this, get a bunch of kids started. When I was in Scotts Bluff studying, there were maybe 10 of us that played string instrument, maybe. I might be exaggerating there. And I went to observe the program last May, the Sprout program, plus the gal that's teaching in the school, because it feeds into the school and she's got a great program. And I saw 300 string players. 300 string players. This is an, an area of 30,000, right? That's really something that's bringing that community together. The Sprout program is amazing. There's 75 to 100 kids in that one. And then she's got her school program that she's doing. Granted, it's one person. But it's not just about numbers, right? So that's impressive it's, and it's heartwarming. But, right. But what else is it about right. music and music education that is important to the individual, but also to the this yep. to a community? Um, I will say to me it is about numbers to some degree because I want 
accessibility to musical excellence to be a thing. So I want as many little kids, I think it's valuable enough. Uh, what does it do for you to start that young? So um, we all know that there's, there's um, math benefits. I mean, there's been studies that show there's all these academic benefits to studying a musical instrument. And we've even had some of those astonishing results ourselves with program evaluation where we discovered our kids were getting four times the amount of vocabulary development, which leads into reading readiness. Um, there was a study in the 60s, 1960s, that showed they put these vests on kids, and they did it for a very long time. It was very longitudinal years and they measured the number of words that were spoken directly to the child. They discovered that kids in poverty heard, heard spoken to them 30 million less words than maybe somebody who was affluent. And so whether or not there's been things that have happened since then that are, you know, have, have really identified to a greater degree what that gap is, there's still a gap. Bottom line is there's a gap. So when you start a child three and four and you have caregiver, their main caregiver involvement, their main intersection at that point is not school. It's whoever's in their, the adults in their environment. So you're already making a dent in what is likely to be sometimes over a year gap in ability between a child of an affluent family and that of a child in under-resourced or poverty family. So just the act, I don't even care if they sound awful on the violin or cello or viola or whatever it is they're playing. The activity of sitting with their parent, doing something that's hard, and having success, whatever that tiny step is, being talked to, um, that is invaluable skills for later in life. So you're trying to teach them that grit the kids that actually make it are the ones that persevere more. You teach up the discipline of perseverance. You know, we have some videos of some kids uh, who've been through the string sprouts. And what I love about it, I don't care how they play. What I love about it is hearing a kid say, I like the challenge of this. And if it's something easy, ah, that doesn't interest me. Something hard is fun to work at and get and then be like, I did that. Wow, you know, you got a kid who's seven that's saying that, that maybe it was at risk and now they're saying that, that kid's gonna go somewhere. Well, you also have to have parents that want you to, to work hard to be the best person that you can be. It's a lot of it's the caregiver and the environment. So when, when we do the Sprouts program, there's the, one of the unique things about it is there's parent there's a parent session at every class. So the kids are with, at the end of the class, the kids are with the assistant and the teacher takes all the parents and talks about, let's figure out how your child learns. Are they a visual learner, oral learner, or kinesthetic learner? Here's some ways to determine that. Let's find out what the top two motivators for your child are. Because whatever your motivators are, are the way you're gonna motivate, and that may not be the way your child's motivated. So let's figure out what that is. So all of these tools that the parents are getting, that's, that's the core of it because you got, they're with them more than a teacher is with them. So it's really impacting the community at the family level. Is now a good time to impose on you for 
uh, another piece. Um, I really like this one. It's at the beginning of book two, and I like it because it has a lot of uh, good tone elements, and um, it has a good story behind it. It's chorus from uh, Judas Maccabeus by Handel, so I really like this one. We've talked a little bit about you, we've talked about music education, and we've talked a little bit about children too. But what about people like me, that are adults that have never learned to bring music in, into our lives? Obviously, listen to music, but I've, I've never learned an instrument. I've never studied music. I'm not entirely sure that I want to. What is there for adults? What would you say to adults who are um, uh, maybe we're frustrated, maybe we don't know if music is for us. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do about people like me? <laughs> well, first I would say music is for you. Um, we do have a ton of adult learners. So people that have like, I've always wanted to play piano, I've always wanted to play. So we have on campus about 750 uh, students studying privately, taking private lessons, and of those 10% are adults. So these are people that have, and I think, you know, people are living longer and they're retiring and they have, they can still do a lot of things. And so a lot of them are saying, this is my time, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And actually that one of the things that is the most um, invigorating for your brain is to do something completely new so that you're building new connections. So it's, it's a quality of life thing as well as you get older to attempt to do some of these skills that will keep your brain more alive rather than just the same old routine that you do every single day. So I would say everybody should take a, private, uh, uh, a lesson on an instrument of their choice. Uh, not everybody will do that, of course, but um, I think that music, why do we see people at concerts. Why do they go to concerts? Why do they enjoy music? Why is that something that we select for personal enjoyment and relaxation? Well, that's because music is often a, a commentary on either his, history um, and it speaks to that uh, feeling of, well, you, there's all sorts of emotions when you listen to a piece. Um, you know, you might feel anger at some point or it's a, or happiness or relaxation or whatever it is you feel given the type of music you're listening to. So I think, I think it's a way for us to feel our emotions and that's not always cool to just, you know, be <laughs> feeling your emotions 
left and right, but it's a way that we can feel our emotions or we connect with what the person is saying in the, in the if it's a, got lyrics to it, or just the general feeling of the music, how that really portrays pain or that, you know, so I think everybody enjoys music because of the emotional side of it. And then also how it connects to historically, why was it written? It's usually a response to something in the environment that that piece was written. So that's, it's also that person's creative expression of their emotions. You've been doing this for a very long time. You've been a music educator for a long time. You've managed uh, a conservatory for a long time. You have played an instrument for a very long time. What do you feel like is next for you? How do you feel most alive? What are you aspiring to for your future? Um, that's a tricky one. And the reason I say that that's a tricky one is I've never done a project as long and as big as Sprouts. And so a lot of times with artists, when you do a big project like that, and it's successful, we've got 1,300 kids in the Sprout program, you're kind of like, do I have any more ideas? <laughs> sort of a thing. Like, maybe that's it. <laughs> it's all over for me. Um, you know, you, you kind of go through this feeling of, of great loss, like it's, it's over, you know, I, I wrote it, it's all out of my head now, it's, and kids are doing it, and it's wonderful. So you have a little bit of that. Um, I think the next thing that really gets me excited is training teachers. And the reason why is the ripple effect is so great. So if accessibility is important, I can't really impact someone in the bush country of Africa if there isn't a violin teacher in the bush country of Africa. <laughs> I'm making something up here, but, you know, wherever it is that the accessibility needs to happen, there first has to be a teacher there. And so if I can impact string teachers to learn this program or inspire others to get more kids involved with it, that's my goal. And so I think right now, if I could teach more teachers to go out, they make, they ripple with all their communities and their students, and that makes a difference in music education and what is considered vital to a person's education, which is music education, whether we like it or not. If you think about it, music is one of the only um, skills that requires you to give the correct answer within a structure of time. So it's harder, you know, if you're doing a timed math thing, you still have two minutes to complete 40 examples or whatever the quiz is, and you can take a little longer on one and maybe a little less. When there's a beat going, your answer's got to come on the beat. <laughs> right? So academically, the challenge of what you learn when you're doing music is far more rigorous than most any academic thing you can think of.
I've been in conversation with Ruth Mainz, violinist, music teacher, and executive director of the Omaha Conservatory of Music. Ruth, thank you for being on the show. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Do you think I could impose one more time for something just to play us out? Sure, I'll, I'll play one of my favorite songs from the Sprout repertoire and um, from my Western Nebraska roots. Uh, here's a little Boil the Cabbage. the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>